Hello, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I live near the long-decimated Ohlone village of Huchin in what is now known as Oakland, California. I'm an active member of the lay-led First Congregational Church of Oakland, and I participate in a whole host of rabble-rousing activities here in resistance to white supremacy, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia and transphobia, and U.S. imperialism. You can read more from me at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. I'm grateful to be with you wherever you are listening to this right now. If you haven't been here, Oakland is an incredibly beautiful place, a historically working-class city where low- and moderate-income people of all colors and creeds have made a life together. To the west is the glittering San Francisco Bay and the foggy outline of our wealthier neighbor, San Francisco. To the east stands a steep ridge that is almost entirely regional parkland. Thank you, faithful ancestors. Full of redwoods and meadows, coyote and fox and wild turkeys, even the occasional mountain lion. And right in the middle of the city is Lake Merritt, which is the social and cultural hub of Oakland. On any given day, you can find drummers and dancers, tightrope walkers and jugglers, skateboarders and joggers, and dogs and babies galore. The lake is changing, though. Lately, there are more police in the area, and new regulations prohibit barbecues and limit sound. The lake area, like the rest of the city, like so many cities around the country, is becoming whiter and wealthier and much more dangerous for people of color and poor people. This city of resistance, which gave birth to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the Black Panthers, this city that was home to the Harlem of the West and one of the most vibrant Chinatowns in the country, this city that when I moved here in 2007 boasted that more than 130 languages were spoken here, this city and its people are at risk. And my presence here, despite my best efforts, makes that risk greater. Without my consent, my white skin on the streets advertises to other white people that we are welcome here. And together, we are destroying the cultural richness that drew us here. All of this makes me very uncomfortable. I think it's probably well past time for white people like me to be uncomfortable. We've been too comfortable for too long. Or rather, we have become addicted to a false comfort that comes at others' expense. 
I'm hoping this podcast can be a place where we can be uncomfortable together. I pray that this discomfort will push us toward a new way of life where we can stop doing harm, intentionally or unintentionally. I pray that the discomfort will lead us into a new way of life where we can meet all our brothers and sisters and kin of all genders on level ground. I believe that is the promise of our scriptures. to talk to you today about Romans 5. I'll be honest, until I heard the episode of this podcast that focuses on the book of Romans, the one that Reverend Ann Dunlap did a few months ago, I had never really imagined that it had much to offer us in terms of resistance. Romans relies heavily on these abstract nouns like justification, faith, grace, honor, shame, and glory. And all that abstraction makes it hard for me to grab onto this text and make use of it in any practical way. What I'm learning, though, is that these seemingly abstract terms were really important in Paul's time. They were basically the building blocks propping up the Roman Empire and justifying all its exploitation and repression. So Paul is taking these terms from the imperial ideology and reappropriating them we might even say queering them, in order to serve a different Lord, a true Lord, the Lord of love who revealed herself and her queer countercultural kind of victory in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think if we can dig today's passage out from under the abstractions, out from under centuries of inherited interpretations, most of which actually serve to bolster rather than undermine empire, we will have uncovered something important. We just might have uncovered the key to unsettling patriarchy, white supremacy, and every form of domination. So, are you ready? Today's passage begins with a reminder of justification by faith, which Paul has been at pains to explain through the last couple chapters of the letter. His point is that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is under the power of sin, and that we can't free ourselves by works alone. Now, Paul isn't talking here just about individual people doing individual bad things, the way a lot of Christians talk about sin. He's talking about structural, systemic sin. He's saying that we are all recruited into participation in systems of domination, whether as soldiers or social workers, police officers or policymakers, teachers or techies. The systems of domination have ways of appropriating and co-opting our work, our words, even many of our protests, which become mere safety valves, allowing enough off-gassing of social pressure to prevent the whole system from exploding. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't protest, by the way. Hang on, and we'll come back to this. The reason that everything we do can be so easily co-opted by the system is that whether we realize it or not, 
We have been socialized to think about what we do as ways of earning merit, which the people of Paul's time called honor, and which people in the movement to dismantle white supremacy sometimes call good white people cookies. We fall prey to doing things designed to justify ourselves, whether that's to the authorities or to our bosses or to our parents, or even, yes, to the targeted groups we are trying to be accountable to. We subtly shape our actions to get approval and acceptance by those to whom we grant power. As a kid, I used to run around and clean the house before my mom got home, hoping to earn her love. Kids follow the rules at school to avoid getting in trouble with the administration. We obey unjust laws to avoid arrest. How many times have we heard people who commit atrocities say, I was just following orders? How many times have you stopped yourself from saying something challenging to your congregation, your supervisor, your spouse, because you didn't want to risk your position? Sometimes we can't even allow ourselves to think certain things for fear of how disruptive it will be to our settled ways of living. So long as we are trying to justify ourselves within an unjust system, we can never be free to love fully. We are enslaved to what James Baldwin has called the inane system of penalties and rewards that keeps us serving the status quo, even when the status quo has no intention of serving us. This was true in Paul's time, too, and this is what he means, I think, when he says that all are under the power of sin. Rome operated according to a strict honor-shame hierarchy, where the elite competed for honor by winning battles, by financing public works, by building monuments or temples to the emperor, generally by courting favor with the powers that be, whom you did not want to cross. Now those in the lower classes of Rome, the slaves and immigrants who mostly made up Paul's audience for this letter, were never really going to get access to the rarefied realms of the Roman nobility, but they were still replicating the logic of honor and shame, competing over who was the most worthy. Were the Jews better because they were circumcised and bore evidence of being God's chosen people? Or were the Gentiles better because the Jews were, well, the Jews, people who were despised and feared because they were so hard to colonize, what with their loyalty to a competing Lord? In fact, part of the essential context of the letter to the Romans is that the Jews who were the initial leaders of the Jesus-following house churches in Rome, those churches that Paul is writing to, are now being excluded from those same churches. What started as a Jewish liberation movement, with the marginalized Jewish people at the center and with Gentiles invited to participate in that liberation as a route to their own salvation, is now centering Gentiles and replicating the anti-Semitism of the dominant culture. We see this happen over and over again in multiracial movements. People from the dominant culture, trying to justify themselves, end up taking over the movement and centering their own anxious need to prove themselves. In the process, oppression is replicated and the movement is drained of power. The logic of domination diverts our liberatory energy into a competition for status. 
This is the very origin of white supremacy in this country. Whiteness was invented to divert and divide potentially revolutionary energy. Virginia slaveholders essentially invented the concept of white people in order to harness the human desire for status and honor to separate poor white people from enslaved Africans with whose interests they would otherwise have been aligned. This strategy, needless to say, has proven wildly successful, and it continues to this day as we are encouraged to blame people of color for our impoverishment rather than targeting the systems that extract resources from us and funnel them to the elite. Poor, working-class, and middle-class people in this country are encouraged to keep striving to get ahead, keep playing the individualist upward mobility game, even though we have pretty much zero chance of making it into the economic elite. This is the logic of white supremacy. If we can't be one of those people up there above us, well, at least we are better than them. Shamed by a dominant culture that teaches us that poverty is a personal failing, rather than a systemic guarantee, white people and men are fighting like hell to preserve the little bit of honor they have. At least we are better than those people. This actually shows up in our movement spaces too. We compete to be perceived as the most woke. We treat other white people with viciousness and contempt in order to show up, shore up our own reputations as the ones who really get it. We rush to take the most high-profile actions, hoping to win admiration, or we get frozen by the fear of making a mistake and being shamed. We court favor with leaders of color in the hopes that they will stamp our good white people cards. And when we are called out because inevitably we make mistakes, we get defensive or dissolve into white tears. All of this happens because we are trying to justify ourselves by works. As a result, we end up centering our anxious need to be okay, rather than our collective liberation from a deathly way of being. We center our own struggles and decenter the leadership of the people who have suffered the most intense oppression, and so have the perspective to lead us into a different way. The anxious seeking to please others or prove ourselves makes us vulnerable to co-optation, and it limits our resistance to mostly symbolic, toothless protest that doesn't get us in too much trouble, but doesn't really change anything either. It keeps us replicating the same logic of honor and shame that bolsters white supremacy, even as we are trying to dismantle it. So, what Paul is advancing here is really pretty radical. It's a complete departure from these practices. It just might be the route to freedom. He's saying to us, translated to white Americans in 2017, Yes, you are complicit in the sin of white supremacy. Yes, you are complicit in the systems and structures that are oppressing, exploiting, and killing people. Yes, you and your people have let fear and the hope of upward mobility drive you in ways that have subjugated others. You can admit that now. It's okay to look at it. It's okay to acknowledge it. It's okay to let it in, to grieve it. It's okay to try something new. The empire can't kill what is essential about you. 
They tried that with Jesus. It didn't work. Because actually, God reigns. And God loves you so much that God gave God's life for you. You are the apple of God's eye. You are utterly beloved right now, even before you do a single thing. You have nothing to prove, nothing to earn. You don't have to be perfect. Yes, you will make mistakes as you try to walk in a new way. All fall short of the glory of God. You are free to act anyway. You don't have to take over and run the show to prove how much you know. You can afford to pause and listen. You can follow rather than lead. You have nothing to prove. God loves you so much that Jesus gave his life for you. I want to invite you to just breathe in that love for a minute. Can you feel how different that is? How freeing it is? How it opens up radical possibilities for building up a new world? Now, knowing that you are the recipient of boundless love, unending grace, how much discomfort can you tolerate? What will you do? How will you respond to being loved in a way that frees you from seeking love and acceptance from people with power? How will you step out into your life knowing that there is nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of God? Knowing that you have nothing to lose but your chains? Knowing that the empire no longer has dominion over you? that you don't have to be afraid, that you are no longer playing that game, knowing that you are free from the anxious striving and acquiring, knowing that you don't have to court anyone's favor. Where will love lead you? Will you take greater risks? Will you chain yourself to the bulldozers if you are asked? Will you get in front of the tanks? Will you step away from the microphone and instead prepare a meal for people? Will you prop open the prison doors and the border to this country and the access to your own retirement account? Will you lay down your life for your friends, for your neighbors, for the stranger who is like you, beloved, but who is no threat to your belovedness because there is no competition, no hierarchy of worth, in God's kingdom. And oh yeah, persecutions. There will be persecutions, of course, as we enact this freedom to love, because the emperor still thinks he's in charge. But you know what? We glory in our persecutions, not because they bring us honor. In fact, more often than not, they make us look like losers, like fools. They make us look naive. They align us not with the powerful, but with those who have been most oppressed. They land us in jail with them. We glory in our persecutions because they show forth the love that ultimately triumphs over everything. The love that the Holy Spirit has poured into our hearts. The love of a God who loved us before we knew what love was. That is what it means to boast in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that will never, ever put us to shame. Amen.
For the call to action this week, I'd first like you to spend some time trying to soak in the love and acceptance God has for you, love and acceptance that is utterly unconditional. It helps me to do some visualization. It sounds a little hokey, but sometimes I imagine myself soaking in a hot tub full of God's love or being showered with it like a warm summer rain. Or sometimes I do this practice outside and I try to open myself to the love that the plants and insects and birds have for me without even knowing me. You might also try reading Mary Oliver's poem, The Wild Geese, which is really about justification by faith. Try doing one of these practices every day for two weeks and see how it changes how you relate to the world. Second, I invite you to seek out leadership from among those people who have known the most oppression. Are there queer black women organizing in your community? Are there poor transgender folks? Whose leadership will you follow? Then, as you go about your liberation work, ask yourself, am I doing this freely or am I trying to get cookies? Keep noticing when you feel defensive or ashamed or coerced. Keep remembering that you are totally, utterly beloved and that you have nothing to prove. Notice how this allows you to lean into the discomfort that inevitably comes when we are not being centered. I look forward to hearing how this goes for you. Thanks for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be posting up the next podcast by Tuesday, June 20th. That one will feature Reverend Ann Dunlap discussing the lectionary text for June 25th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct action and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.